Welcome, 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 welcome to Armchair Expert. This is a bonus episode in our continued effort to help with the many facets of Black Lives Matter. Today we have an astounding person by the name of Michael Tubbs. Now, if you want to learn a lot about Michael Tubbs, you should watch the HBO documentary Stockton on My Mind. Mm. This cat is incredible. He became the mayor of Stockton, California in 2017 when he was 26 years old. Oh, he's a wonderkind. He's a phenom. Michael became both Stockton's youngest mayor and the city's first African-American mayor. Michael Tubbs has secured over $20 million in philanthropic capital to launch the Stockton Scholars, a place-based scholarship that aims to triple the number of Stockton students entering and graduating from college. He has so many creative ideas, he does. so many wonderful relationships. And just to remind you, I'm Dan Shepard, and of course, my beautiful co-host, Monica Miniature Padman. <laughs> so please enjoy the astounding, incredible, charming, and fun Michael Tubbs. In our continued effort to promote Black-owned businesses, I'd like to bring your attention to Briogeo, B-R-I-O-G-E-O. Now, this is a very interesting story about Nancy Twine. Now, Nancy, who owns Briogeo, three years into a stint on the commodities desk at Goldman Sachs, Tween's mother died in a car accident. The tragedy pushed her to reconsider her career path. Inspired by her mother, a chemist who had developed a natural face cream, and her grandmother who taught her how to make products with natural ingredients, she spent weekends and nights researching the beauty industry. In 2014, she launched natural hair care brand Briagio that targets customers by hair texture, wavy, coily, dry, or thin, rather than ethnicity. It was profitable from the start, and the revenues quickly grew. It launched internationally in 2018 and is now sold on Sephora shelves around the world as well as through online UK retail cult beauty so if you are in the market for some face cream i recommend you check out briogeo b-r-i-o-g-e-o also thank you forbes for this great write-up so the business i'm going to promote today is marcus books m-a-r-c-u-s that's right marcus books okay it is a black-owned bookstore Founded in the 60s mm. by doctors Ray and Julian Richardson. And it's one of the nation's, maybe the nation's oldest black owned bookstore. And I love reading. They've hosted readings by Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou. This is mm. a fancy bookstore. Now to purchase books from Marcus Books, you have to call a number. It's 510-652-2344. 510-652-2344. That's right. Or you could go in person to 3900 Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Oakland, California. That's right. And they also have a GoFundMe, which is aiming to raise $200,000 to help sustain the Oakland store and the communities it serves. So check out Marcus Books. He's an Where are you at? You're in a bedroom, it seems. So we have a guest room. This is apparently called a day bed. Oh, oh, sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know what this was. That's fancy to me, too. So we have a day bed. <laughs> and then I work from here <laughs> as well. How have your duties changed during this pandemic? What's your routine like now? It's interesting because I have a nine-month-old, too. Oh, oh wow. But it's helpful because he gets me up early. So I'm always on top of everything. <laughs> 5, 530, it's me and him. That's a positive spin. I'm having to be up early. Yeah. That's a real glasses half full kind of attitude. Biggest change I think has been 
toggling between doing work here and work at City Hall. Yeah, and then yeah. also because we're going to have a nanny starting March like 10th, which was like a week before we went shelter in place. So from March oh. 10th to now, me and my wife have been figuring out schedules. So <laughs> I empathize with parents that can't own their schedules like I can. Like being home is not an option. Anyway, so that's been the biggest change is the, the remote work and then also having to be like a public health official. Yeah. Like learning about viruses and spread and contagions and surge yeah. like in hospitals and it's all the stuff I just had no idea I would ever want to learn, much less have to learn. Yeah. We had Garcetti on and he pointed out something really brilliant, which is he said, you know, of any occupation in government, mayors have to be pragmatists above all, like whatever their party allegiances or their idealistic things like they got to keep the city running. Right. Do you find that to be true that it's like it's just a real rubber meets the road job? A hundred percent. I'm the biggest pragmatist at heart with, with strong values, but I'm always looking for how do we operationalize it? How do we get it done, particularly with the resources we have? And I think especially in Stockton, I mean, my city council is four Republicans and two Democrats. So everything we wow. do has to be done and, and, and spoken about in ways that are super pragmatic and don't really tip off an ideology one way or the other, for the most part. Yeah. And have you gotten like a Jedi about phrasing things in ways that you are conscious that won't trigger their identity. Don't you find that once people's identity is being called into question, like they'll die over identity? Yeah, identity and also people don't want to feel like like something can be bad, but they don't want to feel like they're bad because of something that we're trying to change is bad. So I don't do it well all the time, but I think on the big issues, when I have the time to think, I try to message it in terms of like, just values and just keep the conversation centered on that. Like we all believe that everyone should be treated equally. Right. We see that in this instance, this particular group has been treated equally. What do you all propose we do? I propose we do see, and usually that gets at least the support of the other governing officials. Although yeah. it's in the conversation to community. Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult, but I found just like, as you said, that speaking in terms of values and making it personal, not in terms of the harm, but in terms of the solution. Like you can ah. be part of the solution versus yeah. you did this. And do you find on a city level that there's no appetite for growth? People nowadays are like, if the pilot project isn't perfect, then we don't want to fuck with it. I realize that I'm built differently because for me, it always starts with, well, the status quo is horrible. So if the status quo is horrible, even if the solution isn't perfect, it's better than the status quo, which is a step in the right direction. And that's kind of my entire governing frame. Like when things are just terrible, we have to improve upon them and it's not going to be perfect. And it might be a little bit scary. It might t test us on our conventional wisdom. But I think part of the reason why we have the world we have now is that people are so afraid of trying for better that we are just stuck with just a failing status quo, which we know is a failure. We know it's broken, which we know if it perpetuates and keeps going, that's more of a risk than trying to change it. Yeah, and it's very much the you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take analogy. People have to have some appetite for like, yeah, we're going to try something. And actually, it might, it might turn out worse for a minute. So, okay. And then we'll have to reassess and we'll have to continue to work on this. Healthcare to me seems to be the most obvious where it's like, mm. well, if that, that thing didn't run perfect. The Affordable <laughs> Care Act, if that didn't run perfect and all 300 million people weren't satisfied, then it was a failure. And that just seems crazy to me that, that we can't go forward in any direction if our bar is perfection the first time out. Yeah, I, I tell my staff all the time that we have to be more vested in 
the problem being terrible than the solution being perfect. And that we just have to realize like this is a horrible problem. And if we do anything even incrementally, one step better, that's a win. Because just from being mayor for the past couple of years, I've been shocked at how even the status quo, which everyone says they hate and everyone's upset about, change seems to be very scary and threatening and it causes all these weird feelings where folks will vote against their self-interest and vote against their own benefit because it's different than what they're used to, even though what they're used to is like killing them. Yeah. What are some of the bigger battles you've won in your three years there? Oh, man. I'm going to ask you to brag, basically. <laughs> no, no, I, I like a good fight. I think the, the first one is just around reducing gun violence and homicides. My cousin was murdered in Stockton, which is why I decided to come back and run for office. So I am like a pit bull when it comes to kind of gun violence reduction and homicides. And we had a program we had been running, a ceasefire program, which is an evidence-based program that works, but we weren't seeing the results that we needed to see. And I waited two years on city council. And then my first year as mayor, we went from 49 to 54 homicides. And that was just unacceptable. So I remember calling the police chief on New Year's Eve and having an hour-long meeting with him and saying, we're going to do things differently this year. We're going to add another program called Advanced Peace, which is based off Richmond. And it caused some friction because it was a program very similar to the program we had. So by bringing it in, it was an admission that what we're doing in and of itself isn't working. And I was surprised at how so many people were so adamantly against that because they thought I was saying they weren't doing their job or they weren't, they weren't sufficient. And For as sure. got tired said, we're, we're going to do it. So the program is very similar. The only addition is that it actually pays the men that we identify as fellows who are most likely to be victims of perpetrators of violent crime. It pays them a stipend as a job to kind of help keep the peace. But we've seen a 40% reduction each of the last three years because of both those programs working in tandem. So I'm very, very, very proud of that because that was a real fight to change kind of conceptions around sort of who's deserving. Do people deserve a second chance? Do we really want to spend time helping folks who we know are actively carrying weapons, who we yeah. know have, may have shot somebody? Do we really want to give them a second chance? If that is what it's required to make us safer, do we want to keep complaining about homicides, keep complaining about gun violence, but not do anything to change it? And then also just the boring administrative, like ego stuff in terms of, oh, you're on my turf, or you're saying I'm not doing my job, or, cause you can always find a reason for why something's broken. There's always like justify, like, we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't have this. Like that, there's always a reason. There's some, sometimes they're very compelling, but at the end of the day, we had to make a move. So that's the first thing. The second battle I'm, I'm really proud of, and my staff's gonna hate me for saying this, but I am, is that as a city, people know we declare bankruptcy. And I was looking at the budget and I realized we spent a lot of money subsidizing golf courses. And like when we cut everything else, the golf subsidy kept going up. So we like cut firefighters and cut police officers and closed libraries. Golf subsidy kept going up. I noticed that as a city council member, and I would always say during budget session, what's the plan to deal with the golf subsidy? <laughs> <laughs> I realized golf was like the, the, the thing. So I was like, what's, what's it's the It's the backbone of all good economies. Oh what are you talking about, Todd? So, so, but, but look, this is the crazy part. So then I become mayor. I'm like, okay, because Stockton's, you know, a very ideologically diverse place. I said, let me appeal to my fiscal conservatives. So I said, well, hey, this golf subsidy is unsustainable. What's the plan? And there was no plan. It's just going to literally keep going up every year because there was deferred maintenance. There were more even cart paths. It was just. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really funny one, I got to say. Yeah, yeah. So then I just said, 
let's have a conversation about ending the golf subsidy as in the city. And what's interesting, there's two golf courses in the city that the city runs. And there's like eight in the 10 mile radius, private courses, which are which were better, but two that the city ran. One was in a poor neighborhood and it was given to the city as a land trust. So we could only use it for recreation, but recreation doesn't mean golf, it means recreation. And then the second was one in a more affluent area, which was surrounded actually by homes Nice homes, but they're all in the county, meaning they don't pay all the city taxes that go to subsidizing the golf course that boosts their property values up. Ah. And then a lot of the streets are named after Confederate generals. And that. It, it, was, it was very oh, wow. interesting. Oh, oh wow. boy. Okay. So there's a lot happening. There's a lot So happening. then, unbeknownst to me, not understanding the politics, I said, well, we just went through bankruptcy. Let's continue these good habits. We have to end the golf subsidy. It turned into like World War III. There were signs around the golf course oh, saying, God. stop Mayor Tubbs and big black letters. There was all these conspiracies that Mayor Tubbs was trying to take over the golf course and, and sell it to put low-income housing there. That Mayor Tubbs was, had a sweetheart deal with Oprah. To, it was just like all these oh, wow. crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah. It sounds crazy, but a lot of people believed it. So I spent all of 2018 in meetings, learned a lot about golf, which I'm thankful for and how to operate a golf course. But in, in meetings with people, and, and I realized to the point earlier, for a lot of people, they felt that their identity was being targeted, particularly as a young right. black mayor yeah. coming in and saying, we can't afford golf. And I think yeah. for some people, they thought it was like, oh, we're, we're not important anymore. He doesn't value what we care about. When literally for me, it wasn't even a cultural argument. It was literally that, if we could close libraries, we should be able to close down golf course. Like, that, like only 3,000 people in the whole city use the golf course over the course of a year. Long story short, we got to a solution. And now the city doesn't subsidize the golf course. But to the community's credit and listening to them, we found an operator privately who will run the golf course as a golf course. So the city won't sell it. The city won't do anything with it. It's going to be a green space and it's going to be a golf course. And then in five years... If the private operator breaks more than even, the city gets 10% of revenue, meaning what was a losing asset is now a money-making one. And I'm super proud of that because when I started, everyone thought it was going to be recalled. Everyone thought it was going to be a big egg on my face. You can't take on golf courses. Which is crazy to me still because I'm like, we took on firefighters. (laughs) Oh, my God. I know. Heroes. But people are still upset about that, but I'm very proud that we have a solution. So those two things are some of the, the proudest achievements, I would say. What's it like? We haven't gotten into it because I know it's triggering for you, as it would have been for me. But you're young as fuck. Like the, the, <laughs> I, I held off as long as I could. You, you, I think. But you that's took, great. That's you, something to be proud of. Oh, big time! But I, I know from the, his movie that like it's the first oh. topic every time. It's kind of like when I sit I down, someone's that. like, "Oh, you're married to Kristen Bell." I'm like, "Yes, I know. <laughs> Everyone knows. Yes, I am." So anyways, you're young as hell. I think you were, what, were you 26 or 7 when you took office as the mayor? 26. 26. And then prior to that, you were 23, I guess, when you became a councilman? 22. 22. Look at this. Wow. Oh, look, I'm, I'm trying to pad. <laughs> yeah, so 22 and 26. So as I think of all these gifts that are intrinsically related to your age, I've grown less and less idealistic my whole life. I think that's a pretty natural progression more adverse to change than I was when I was young, all these different things. But also to see signs with your name on it planted in the ground at 26, I just feel like at 45, I might be able to handle that. But just now, 
So what is that like for you? I mean, you can tell yourself like, oh, I'm in politics. I know what to expect, blah, blah, blah. But when you see, oh, someone took time to hammer a sign that basically says, I hate this person. What's that like? Well, a lot of this started when I was on city council. So I've had a lot of time because Stockton's a great city in that, in that diverse city. But I mean, anytime there's a first anything in 2020, that suggests that there's been some problems with, with bias at, at some point. I'm um, in the history. So even on city council, I would have, as the youngest person on council, during council comments, it'd be 50 comments just saying how terrible I am. Um, or, or Oh, boy. Oh, boy. My first meeting as a council member was with a group of folks from a part of my council district who told me they were going to succeed from the city. And they had a whole plan for success. The word succession. Yeah, and, and yeah. My, my first meeting as an elected official. So I think I, I received a lot of practice in terms of dealing with things like that and also understanding that politics is just such a weird thing in, the, in this country that a lot of the attacks feel personal, but they're not personal. I represent something to folks. So whether it's something people are excited and inspired by or something that may be scary, like I, it's not me, it's what whatever this young black mayor and what he stands for represents for people cause some sort of rea- reaction. I was fine with it, but a lot of my people around me, my staff, my friends, family, other people were, they were like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I keep telling yeah. people, this is the only profession where an F is a passing grade. You need 50.1%, which means 49.9% of people could hate your guts, could have signs that say stop, recall, but you need 50.1, which sucks because I, I try to work for 100% always. Well, he got 70. Can I tell you that? He oh, won the mayoral amazing. campaign with, with 70% of the vote. Is that a, like a record? That's high, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was, brag that was, some that, more. Come on, brag, 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 brag. That was pretty high. But then, I mean, I, but that's also how fickle politics is because a year and a half later, same bear, <laughs> same mm-hmm. person, had all these a recall campaign and stopped their tubs and... and so yeah, to answer your question, I think in a lot of the country, my upbringing is just realizing that it's not always about you, good or bad. Well, when people assassinate your character, it's really hard not to defend yourself. Like people go like, oh, if you didn't do it, why are you so hung up on it? It's like, well, I've been accused of some things publicly that it drives me bonkers. And then people believe it. And that's the thing. It's this weird catch between too. Cause it's like, okay, like Michelle said, when they go low, you go high. But while you're going high, there's a, still a rope that could pull you, even if you don't say anything because of the yes. things I'm responding to. Uh, and, and that's how rumors and stuff grow, particularly in the age of misinformation. So that's one of the things I'm trying to improve. It's like, how do we communicate the truth to people in a way that's not responsive to craziness, but gives people facts or some response? The one that was, to me, the most insane, where I was like, what is this guy going to do, was the birther movement, right? So you've got Obama. Imagine just anyone who's listening, someone out of nowhere starts saying you weren't born in the USA. It's like, it's so stupid and you so clearly know you were that it doesn't feel like it deserves a comment, but then you just see this thing gaining momentum and momentum and finally you're like, oh, well, I'm actually gonna have to do this. I'm actually gonna have to prove I was fucking born here and just wrestling with like, yes, uh, you don't wanna give those idiots what what they want, which is engagement. But at the same time, wow, if 30% of the countries believe in this, I guess now it is on my plate. I got to dispel this. Even locally, there's like Mayor Tubbs doesn't live in Stockton. But how can you be the mayor and not live in Stockton? No, seriously, how, I'm like, how can you be the mayor? And you're like, you have to legally. <laughs> 
Where do you live? The Bay Area somewhere? <laughs> I live in New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard I lived in Oak Grove yesterday. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, let me ask you. I would imagine when people hear about any town in California or any city, if you're in the rest of the country, assume you're picturing LA or San Francisco, or you believe the whole kind of state is like the coast is. And I think it's really misleading for folks who've not driven around central California. And I was just in your neighborhood for the last seven days. I, I was in Sacramento and then I was in Stockton. Then I was at a racetrack filming. Man, I'm walking around Sacramento and I'm like, this reminds me of a down south town. You know, it's very <laughs> Sacramento. Yes, and that's even like more <laughs> cosmopolitan than Stockton, right? I mean, the the downtown's like cowboy themed, right? <laughs> oh, Sacramento, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you look at the demographic and it very much reminds me of like Gary, Indiana or some of the suburbs of Detroit where it's like pretty high disproportionately high, or at least anecdotally, it seems high, black population, and then kind of rural country boys. It, it's a weird mix. It's not LA. Can, can you speak to the demographic of Stockton? Stockton's the most diverse city in the country. So we have about 40% Latinx folk. We have about 30% white people, 20% Asian people, and 10% African-American. Oh, so um, it's not, that's not disproportionately high. My anecdote was wrong. But, but it, it's a weird sort of kind of melting pot of cultures in the most beautiful way. Like the oldest Sikh temple in this continent is in South Stockton. Oh, wow. wow. I love that fact. Stockton is 10% Black, but it's also 10% Filipino. And at one point, we had the largest Filipino population in the world outside the Philippines in Stockton. Did they bring ghosts with them? <laughs> Not ghosts. I'm sorry. I'm trying to ensnare you. I, I worked with a lot of Filipinos, and they all believed in ghosts, and I loved it. And they all have great <laughs> ghost stories. And they had like a thriving part of our downtown called Little Manila, which was like the thriving place of commerce for everyone ran by the Filipino community. So super diverse. But to your point, I was describing to someone yesterday and saying it's a mix of urban and rural. Yeah. My family came from Texarkana, Arkansas and Jackson, Mississippi, and they migrated to, to Southern California. My grandmother's from Bakersfield. And I think a lot of the African-American families in Stockton come from the South. And, and a lot of the white folks in Stockton come from the Dust Bowl and from Oklahoma. And they're also refugees from Greece and, and other places. So you have this weird mix of like old town feel. Yeah. In this like very urban city, though, it's 315,000 people. It has real big city issues. It's just a fascinating place to be. Did it originate being a like uh, gold mining support town? Is that what it's from? Yeah, Gold Rush Town because we're on the waterway. So, ah, fun fact: we were in the finalists for the capital is between us, Sacramento, and San Francisco. Oh, um, no and actually, oh, wow. the oldest college west of the Mississippi is in Stockton, it's the University of the Pacific. Even today, like transportation of goods and services, the waterways are our main economic drivers, but that stems from sort of the gold rush. And that's also why this, it's so diverse because so many people came or were forced to come to help work on the gold rush stuff. Wow. So you growing up, mom was very young when she had you, right? She was 16 or something. She was 16 when she was pregnant. Yep. And then dad went to prison, is currently still in prison? Yeah. I don't know anything about the crime he committed, but when I just read that it was kidnapping, drug possession, and robbery, all bad stuff. But I also was like, really? Life sentence? I don't feel like a white guy gets a life sentence for that. Growing up, you find out your dad's in prison for 25 to life, you automatically think, oh, they murdered somebody. 
Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. I thought, oh, he either had five kilos or he murdered somebody. So I was always petrified and terrified of actually asking what he did. So I, I didn't find out actually what happened until this documentary, to be honest. Wow. Just, no oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, because growing up, I just didn't want to know because, like, what would that say about me? Uh huh. What people judge me. So I would, I would actually lie oh, wow. when people ask me where my dad was. I would say, oh, I don't know, or he's not around, or he lives in a different city and stuff. Like, I would never tell him when he was in prison. But I think to your he point, he plays for Green Bay. He's always <laughs> in Wisconsin. <laughs> but but I, I think to your point, what's been interesting now as, as a policymaker is realizing that all that internalized, I don't want to be a bad person, I'm going to be super good. I was happy as I matured that I realized that there's also policy. So he's in jail for 25 to life because of the terrible three strikes law. Oh. Yeah. Whatever their third strike is, you're in 25 to life. There's circumstances, at least he claims for his arrest, which I found out in watching the documentary, was that I had a half-sister who was born with some birth defects and died young. And he had just been released, but he was responsible for burying her. He was just released, didn't have money, so he had $3,000. So he didn't rob some like grandmother or he didn't go break into someone's house. He robbed a drug dealer he knew from being in the streets who he knew he would have money, thinking uh -huh. that person wouldn't tell because of kind of street code, street rules. Yeah. Ended up, didn't realize that taking him to the bank was kidnapping. So he's like, I'm going to go. But he took him to the uh -huh. bank, kid that took the money. The guy ended up getting busted for something else. And that's part of his plea deal. Went ahead and shared some other folks he know who were involved. And that's sort of from his rendition but also just from some other folks is, is what happened for literally three thousand dollars to bury his daughter so i think for, from him it's the stuff around basic income stuff around criminal justice now it just makes even more sense because i'm thinking like wow 30 years ago things may have been different if some of these things had been in place no guarantees but it's a, yeah. at least for me it's an interesting kind of thought game to play well what i imagine for you and again now i'm projecting because i had issues with my dad he didn't end up in prison but you know four duis he split he didn't pay child support i had a lot of issues with him yeah. and then i found compassion over the years and realized oh he was so much a victim of his circumstance and now I've had kids of my own. I recognize the struggles. I've married as he was, and I'm recognizing, you know, and I guess as I, the older I get, I just grow more and more compassionate for his story and step out of my own egotistical evaluation of him. And I would just wonder if you've been on a journey similar to that. A hundred percent. I think as a child, most child, you're very self-centered, right? Yeah. I never even considered how he felt being locked up. I never thought about, does he miss me? Is this hard for him too? Like in my mind, it was like, he's having some vacation in prison away from his son and he's enjoying it and he chose that over you like like there was a clear decision at one point that said you want to see michael or you want to go hang in jail and he said let's go to jail yeah and then i thought about well wow all these people are going to judge me because of him i had nothing to do with him and then see watch my mom struggle and say even if they weren't together if she had some help maybe she'd be less stressed less anxious things would be different or like little things, like on Father's Day. Like, man, I wish I could make a Father's Day card for a, a father, but I'll just make it to my mother, right? Like, and, yeah, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of that just fueled me probably pretty unhealthily, actually, as a child, to just be a super overachiever. I used to, like, cry when I missed one word on spelling tests. Like, a lot of pressure. as like an eight, nine-year-old to not be a stereotype, to be perfect. I'm not going to be like that, right? And as I got older, I realized... Not really until I went to college and started reading about kind of policies and started reading about kind of structures and started realizing that 
individual choices matter, but they happen in the context of an environment that people don't choose. And that it that's happens right. in the context right. of a country where a decision that someone makes versus someone else will have radically different consequences based off their race, based off where they live. So that caused me to really think and wonder. And as I've gotten older, I just realized that, oh, no, like he actually may not be this horrible person. He actually may have made some terrible decisions, but, but let's look at the totality. And then I think having a son has been the kicker. If I'm gone for three days for a business trip when we could travel, I feel horrible. I'm like, I miss oh. him. What am I missing? Is he okay? What's going I'm like, sad. And then I'm like, well, imagine doing that for 25 years. Ugh. I had that exact same thing where I had this baby and all of a sudden the whole paradigm flip where I was like, oh, I always thought I was the victim. But now when I see how much I miss this child, I know I miss this child more than I ever miss my parent. I finally was like, oh, he was the victim. I wasn't the victim. He missed something you can't get back. And I feel terrible because I could have, but it's not like he went away and said, I'm never going to talk to you again. He would write and I would write back and he always wanted me to visit. I just did not enjoy the the process of visit. I go to prisons all the time, but visiting a loved one in prison, I, it just felt very traumatic. So I've only done it two times. Um, yeah. and, I, and I felt terrible about that. And then on this documentary, I was I didn't know he was going to be in it. So when I f saw the first draft and he was in it, my first instinct was to revolt back to 15-year-old Michael and say, no, why is he in this? Take this out. No. Yeah. And then I realized, to your point, I would hate for my son, for the only representation of me, to be just what my son thinks, particularly if we had a, didn't have a good relationship or if he didn't know me. So it was all based off what he thought and what he felt considered on him. And I said, he deserves the chance to be a full person, <laughs> to be a full yeah. human, and to tell his story. Because everyone's going to hear what I think because I'm the mayor. I have the platform. I am free. I get to speak. Yeah. So, and then watching it and seeing people's reactions, I'm like, that was the right choice. And I, I'm happy at this point. I've, I've forgiven. I'm excited. I can't wait for him to be released and for him and my son to have a different relationship. But I just feel bad for all I may have lost from just being afraid to figure out what, what happened. And also just being very angry as a kid. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert. If you dare. We are supported by Honey. We all shop online and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. They support over 30,000 stores online. They range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. Now, I'm always saving a bundle on my Jordy's purchase. Purchases. Oh my God, you have about 400 Jordies because of Honey. That's true. I've gotten upwards of 20% off of some purchases mm. on Honey and those shoes are expensive. So I've really come to rely on Honey to save some bucks. Now imagine you're shopping at one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button drops down and all you got to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. Honey has found over 17 million members, over $2 billion in uh, savings. Now with a B? With a B. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast so get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash dax that's joinhoney.com slash dax
We are supported by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you access the internet as if you're from a different country. What? Yeah. Netflix has different shows, right? And movies available depending on where you live. With ExpressVPN, you can unlock thousands of new shows and movies from streaming libraries Mm. around the globe. ExpressVPN is available on every device, phones, laptops, tablets, and even your TV. ExpressVPN works with many streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. It's so simple to use. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location, hit connect, and then refresh the page, and the show or movie you want to watch will magically appear. Very cool. I get asked all the time, like, people want to watch Hit and Run on Netflix, but they're in England, and for some reason it doesn't work there. ExpressVPN is the answer to that. I would love for anyone in a foreign country to please check out the movies I've made. That's just a selfish <laughs> request. So use ExpressVPN to do it. Now, here's an update. Wobby Wob's been using ExpressVPN to watch The Great Canadian Baking Show oh, hosted fun. by Dan Levy and Julia Chan on Netflix. If you use my link right now at expressvpn.com slash DAX, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash DAX. So in, in hating my father and making him this archetype, I then made my mother a different archetype, just a saint, <laughs> the perfect human being who I'd lay down in front of railroad tracks any day of the week for. I think I was trying to be the husband she deserved. Hmm. I was like, that dad, he shit the bed on this, but I'm going to be the guy that she deserved. And I just wonder how how much of yours was motivated out of like giving mom something that you think she deserved from the get. Yeah, I I, I realized, I think because kids are smart. So growing up, living in a certain neighborhood, seeing how teachers look at you or talk to you or talk to your peers, you realize that there's certain judgments or perceptions and also seeing just how hard my mom but also my aunt and grandmother worked i think i also had a very strong drive to make them proud to make them right to make their sacrifices worth it i always wanted to feel like no all the stuff you're doing it's going to pay off you know always just went to like make sure they were provided for you have everything so it's pretty because my mom was so young yeah i love my mom would do anything for her but our relationship has had some some evan flows but for sure because she was growing up as an adult the same time i'm like 13 14 years old with a moody teenager trying to figure out who i am as well yeah you're doing this at 29 and it's hard right you're doing (laughs) it with 29 with a spouse and you're gonna have help and it's fucking hard oh and that's the other i think to answer this question in the last one part of the process is also getting older so i remember my 23rd birthday but my now wife then girlfriend took me to like this nice dinner and we're eating and I just got really emotional. She's like, what's wrong? I was like, at 23, my mom had a seven-year-old and my dad was like in jail. And I'm like yeah. on this boat eating this amazing meal with this beautiful person. Like, wow, how much of their life did they not have? And that yeah. was also a big wake-up call for me too. Like, no, they were raw. Particularly, he's been in jail since he was 17. Like the last 10, 13 years since 17 have been amazing. I've really sure. enjoyed them. I can't imagine seven, like high school being the peak. Right. Yeah. But that's the question about my mom. I think absolutely, definitely a strong desire to prove her right, a strong desire to um, make her look good. But what's funny is that she's most proud of my son. Like that's what I think. I'm yeah. 
He hadn't done yeah. shit either. <laughs> oh, my birthday is Sunday. She was like, oh, um, on Sunday I went to see my grandson. I'm like, <laughs> did you forget it's my birthday? <laughs> like you did this? Just going back to your, your dad, I just want to place some emphasis on the point that I think we all want so badly to make people in prison and criminals inhumane. We want to categorize them as not real people so that it's easy for us to live with the fact oh, that yeah. we know that they're a bunch of people in a building. A box. Cages. Yes. Oh. And so I think our brains try to justify it by saying like, well, they deserve it and they're not real. They don't have empathy. And then so it's really good to hear an account of someone who's there. It was like, no, I'm a person. They didn't I'm stop being human. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to reconcile that that's our best option in 2020 Ugh. is like th literally throw people in a trash can and then let them out 20 years later. Be like, good luck. <laughs> and particularly now when the big I just tweeted something earlier, the biggest super spreading places of COVID-19 are prisons. Like I yeah. was talking oh, to my wife yeah. a couple months ago, like I would hate at a point now where I'm mature I'm ready to have a real relationship. I want my son to have a relationship with his grandfather for my father to get COVID-19. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the last laugh of the system. Right. It's yeah. like that, and, and, and it's just terrible just how many folks in prison have COVID-19 and how no one seems to care because I'm sure they don't have a bunch of ventilators in prisons. I'm sure they don't have enough ICU beds in prison hospitals. Oh, you've mm -hmm. seen the video. There's like a guy, his Ugh. cellmate is like dying in front of him and he's videoing it like, get me out of this room. Can you imagine being stuck in Ugh. a six foot box with someone dying of COVID? Yeah. Okay, let's argue about some stuff. Um, <laughs> you are a proponent of uh, universal basic income. I'm on the fence about it. I have some reservation and I think it might be the premise that I'm, I'm bumping against and maybe not the actual policy, but I'd love for you to tell me why you believe in that and what do you think it can do? Yeah, well, well, I came in as a skeptic, honestly. I came in thinking what sucks is poverty and economic insecurity. So that's terrible. So let's figure out what options do we have to address it. And my staff came up with a basic income, met the economic security project, told them we were working on that. We decided to partner and do a pilot. And what we found is that particularly something as small as $500 a month, it's not enough to replace work, but it's enough to allow work to go further. Gene Sperling has an amazing book about economic dignity. It's enough to ensure that everyone has the dignity to be able to bury their daughter, like my father was able to, to be able to take time off work if they're sick. Particularly because if you look at the jobs in our country, so many people work in jobs without union protections, without paid time off, without paid sick leave. And there's a conversation to be had about doing those things as well. But we know that we don't have them. So I think a guaranteed income makes a lot of sense. And so that was the first thing. The second thing was realizing that there's so much work that's being done, particularly by women, that's not compensated as work. Like folks who stay home and do domestic work or caregiving, if they did it next door, they would get paid. But because they yeah. do it in, at home, they, they don't. And for so many women, staying home is a smart economic choice because retail jobs, minimum wage jobs, don't pay enough for childcare. So that's been eye-opening. And then number three, the, the issue is that, and I thought going in, that if people worked, they should be fine. Like People should work. Like, I want people in my city to work. But then I realized that the vast majority of people in our country who can work actually do work. Those who don't work are children. The highest group of people in poverty not working are children because of child poverty laws. 
but also may have a disability or also are formerly incarcerated folks who can't find work. And that all the jobs available actually are good jobs. And we see that so clearly now when folks are literally going to work, contracting COVID, getting their whole family sick and still can't pay for rent and still can't pay for the utilities. And I think of, I know you mentioned your mom um, and, and her work at night as a janitor. I think of my mom and how hard she worked, worked herself to death. And by the way, we just got lucky. Like at any point, had there been a medical thing, had there been, my mom got sick and couldn't work. At any point, like there was never 40 cents more in the monthly budget than what was being spent. So we just got lucky for, you know, 18 years. And that's what's crazy to me. People are literally living life as a game of Russian roulette and, and chance. Like one in two people can afford one $500 emergency. And then I really became a believer just looking at what happened the past 18 months in Stockton. All the the data says like people spend money how we spend money, and that's pretty intuitive. But the stories, there's one man, Tomas, who told me that the $500 a month, I said, what'd you do with it? He said, oh, I, I interviewed and I got a job. I said, why would you pay $500 to get an interview? People said we wouldn't know how to use the money. This is, oh my gosh. And he laughed at me and he said, no, man, I worked retail, so I didn't have pay time off. So for me to interview for a job I may be qualified for, would mean I have to take time off work. That's not pay, which means $200, $300 on my paycheck with no guarantee that I'll get the new job. And I can't do that because I have two kids and we live paycheck to paycheck. He said, but the $500 was enough for a cushion for me to take a yeah. bet on myself. Luckily for him, he got the job, but I didn't realize, like, wow, an income floor or something is enough for people to take a risk, to, to do the things necessary mm -hmm. to better themselves. That you can actually get trapped. You can get trapped in the situation. Yeah, growing up, my mom used to go to check cashing places mm -hmm. because she always had enough money at the end of the month, but bills are due at different times. So in her paycheck yeah. and the bills weren't always aligned, so she would need to pay this bill on the 1st. She gets paid the 8th, but she's $300 short on the 1st, so she would have to go borrow money against her check on the 8th to pay and the 1st. Lose 20% <laughs> of it. So yeah. I remember how happy she was. I'll never forget as a 12-year-old when she paid her last thing at the check cashing place and said, well, I'm never coming back to this place again. You must never go. Like she made up something the most evil, wicked yeah. thing. She said, this place right here, <laughs> never go to. And so that's why I'm so passionate. Let me tell you one more story, actually. So another non-economic like story, this one lady said that the $500 a month was enough for her to smile. That's why, yeah, everyone likes money. You give me $500, I'll smile. I'll smile. <laughs> well, for a minute or two, you will. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but she said, no. Mayor, what she was saying is that she was told she needed dentures two years oh. ago, but she could never afford the dentures. She could never get the money to get the dentures, so she just wouldn't smile for two years. But oh. with the basic income, like so, I think it's just stuff like that that shows, like, wow, we live in a society with so much, and we're not saying give people everything. We're just saying we can afford to give people a floor, and what people do with that floor is up to them. But to have people stressed, anxious, unemployed. People are evicted. In terms of evictions, I thought people were evicted because they paid no rent. Yeah. But no, people are evicted because they're $200, $300, yeah. $400 short of rent. It's not like they're not paying. Like, And I think this, this trope I had that the folks who are struggling are people who are just freeloading or who aren't yeah. working yeah. hard yeah. or who have no yeah. motivation. And I, it's actually the exact opposite. Like folks are working incredibly hard. But the economy isn't working for them. There's not enough. They don't have enough for basic necessities, not even luxuries like rent, yeah. food. 
that clearly is awesome. My two fears are, I believe strongly in incentives, right? I, I believe in sen- that humans do what they're incentivized to do. I don't think you can get around that. So I worry that when we on the left create these policies that are always well-intentioned, sometimes they end up incentivizing things that were unforeseen. The mm. classic example of, right, is our welfare policy in the 80s and that we ended up incentivizing not getting married, which was, you know, regrettable. That was Terrible. an oversight on the left. And so we're, we're capable of those oversights, that's for sure. So I have that little bit of fear. Then my second thing is, the premises I've been told is, and this is probably mostly coming from Andrew Yang, is that our future is automation. We are in this collision course with nobody working and that we're going to have to figure out how to support those people. And, and I kind of bought into that for a while. But then I, you look historically, and this prediction has been made 10 times. When we, when we leave from the horse to steam power, we think 80% of the world is going to be unemployed. And then we go from steam power to the assembly line, and that's going to cause this thing. And then the computer revolution, all this. And by, by the way, we always figure out how to work. So <laughs> part of me feels like it's a little bit defeatist to say we're not going to figure out how to work, so we got to figure out how to pay people to survive. I, I appreciate folks who have the automation frame in terms of there's this technological disruption that happened that may displace people, may not like every other technological displacement that's happened in the history of, of, of mankind. But I think for me, I come from basic income differently because I learned it studying Dr. King. And Dr. King was talking about this in 1967 at a time when the country was literally on fire again because of civil unrest. And he talked about how as a moral argument and as an argument in terms of what public good is, is that it doesn't make sense for us to allow poverty when we have the means to abolish it. Particularly at a time when Jeff Bezos just made $13 billion. Mm-hmm. in one day, right? And no, no, not hanging on Jeff Bezos, good for you. I would love to make $13 billion in one day. Not sure what <laughs> yeah, I yeah, can yeah. do to do yeah. that. But yeah. if we can do that, there, there's a way to have a social contract that, is a, that this allows for no bottom. And I, and I hear you on the incentives point as well, but we thought that we did $500 a month and we found that that has not been enough to, hell, that's probably You're not right. even enough. It's, 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 it's yeah. a little supplement. And, and I think that's part of the trick, right? It's like you almost got to find the exact dollar amount before which people go, well, fuck it, I'm not going to go to work. And I agree. I don't think anybody gets a check for $500 for the entire month. It's like, I'm good. You know, so <laughs> that seems like a great number. I just wonder, it must be variable per city. Obviously, to live certain places requires a certain amount of floor. Now, how did you fund it? I feel like I interpreted that maybe you, you just went out and raised the money for this fund. Yeah, I um, was able to work with the Economic Security Project, partnered with them and said, hey, let's test this idea in Stockton. And, let, and let's, I'm happy to take the heat. I'm happy to use the data. I mean, if it works, I'm happy to speak about it, but speak about it in a way that elevates human dignity. And it's about agency. So I think the automation just robs us of, of agency, of the, like the future is going to happen to us. And we're hopeless to shape it. And I'm like, no. Yeah. A basic income gives folks the agency to make choices as to how to spend money, but also to prepare themselves for if something happens, that they have a raft or a way to persist through those times. Because I, I too, I hate defeatism. I wouldn't be mayor if I ascribed to that fee. And then the last thing I would say on incentives is that I think the incentive structure is wrong. We have people working, again, long hours and still can't pay for necessities. I think that actually, if that was me, I don't see why I would want to work. 
Like, why, why does you're, it matter yeah, if I work? It's not worth it. You're totally right. I agree with that. Well, we even found ourselves growing up in that weird middle ground where my mom made enough that we didn't qualify for free insurance. And yet we didn't have insurance. You know, like, <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of rungs where you can kind of get fucked. It's not just when you're poor. It's not just when you're this or that. And I think that's why the guaranteed income is so important. And I realized this in, in, in talking to folks in Stockton is that there's a lot of people who think they're middle class who actually aren't. <laughs> they're actually like uh-huh. lower middle class are working poor, but even still they don't qualify. They make just above what's necessary for all the programs we have, but they don't have a lot of assets. They don't, they make a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, a thousand dollars more and are still struggling and then have a lot of resentment towards people who actually qualify for an existing program. So that's why I'm also a big proponent because I found in Stockton, we have people making 50, 60, 70K who are saying, no, this $500 is helpful for saving for kids college or paying off debt or paying off these stupid credit cards. Like it's, it's just that so many people in our society struggle economically and could use just a little bit of help. Last thing I'll say, I realize that money is a function of time. And the more money you have, the more you own your time. And I think as a parent, I realized yeah. that the function of government should be to allow parents, no matter who they are, how funds are configured, to parent, to have time with your child. And the way to do that is to give people the ability to own their time. And something like an income floor makes it so I don't have to work two jobs or I have to work this terrible job. Okay, now I want to get into an area that I will probably not lay out in the best way. Uh, I don't really know the perfect way to state it but i want to get into this topic of you going to stanford that must have been some cultural shock or i guess what i'm trying to broach is is there a route by which a young black man can do what you did without going and getting the upper class white toolkit no, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think what I'm hearing is that, like, well, okay, does it require you to hit the lottery and go to school? <laughs> yes, like yes, yes, that's what I'm getting at. Two. Like, yes, because you're clearly bright as fuck, and certainly Stanford played a role in that. But also, you you were bright as fuck before you went to Stanford, and it's just interesting that, like, when we evaluate these systems, the systemic issues that we're trying to dismantle or, or, or course correct on. You know, how much of it are, are we still embroiled in in that aspect of it? So the first thing I remember at Stanford and being in class, I remember going back to my dorm and texting my friends and saying, look, these people here are smart, but no one here is smarter than me or you. Like, because <laughs> I literally thought going to Stanford, like all these people had a monopoly on intelligence. A different species, like yeah. a different species of yeah. animal. I was like, yeah. no. And, and that's why I tell people all the time in Stockton that, Talent and intellect are universal or at least widely distributed, but resources and opportunities are. And I, and I think to your point, and I tell people all the time that it's actually nonsensical and not sustainable to possess that a black kid has to be born in a country with a history of racism, have a mom at 16, have a father incarcerated, has to have three moms who work incredibly hard, were super strict has to have had access to preschool and books and things of that sort, has to do almost perfectly in school despite being kicked out of class and despite having teachers who were racist, who had to save lunch money to buy SAT prep books to teach himself to prepare for the SAT, how to do well in the SAT, how to meet a woman online to help him with his college applications, 
gets lucky enough to be picked to Stanford, and then that person can lead. That's just ridiculous. It's, it's and most- I think people like yeah. you and Obama both weirdly help and hurt, right? Like there's this like, oh, good. So Tubbs proved that this system is full of opportunity, and, and Obama proved that this system's full of opportunity. But if you're just looking at the percentages, you're talking, you know, less than any 1%, sure. With all those things you just listed, yes, someone can transcend that. <laughs> and it's funny because in high school, I really believed in this idea of exceptionalism. But now I'm like, even the word exceptionalism conveys that we understand it's not sustainable or ex- it's exceptional. It's, it's way beyond the norm. It's not what's expected. That's why I annoy people by talking about structure so much and talking about it despite sort of what I've been able to achieve with a lot of help. Despite all that, like all these things are still wrong and all these things still need to change. And even the systems I've benefited from, like the fact that I was, me and my wife were talking about this now, like it will be terrible for my son to have a leg up at admissions at Stanford just because both his parents went to Stanford than Michael Tubbs in Stockton. And uh-huh. if my son gets the spot, that, that, that's, that's terrible. That's just not okay. And I think it annoys people, but it's so real. Like we could get distracted from like, oh, wow, there's one story. But how many people in this country have people and in, parents incarcerated? I'm unique in that I'm a mayor with someone, a father who's incarcerated. This country incarcerates more people than every other country in the world combined. So there's a whole millions and millions of folk that have parents incarcerated. So the fact yeah. that one of us <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I worked my ass off to get into UCLA. I did not get there out of high school. Let's just say that. And so part of it's like, oh, shit, my girls could maybe go to UCLA. Like they could have a little, just a little 10% that I killed myself to get them. That's pretty tempting. (laughs) I want to taste that. And I guess what I'm asking is, can you a little bit see how the system perpetuates itself? Like once you're on the inside of the party... You're very incentivized to keep that door closed. Yeah, because a party is nice. I met my <laughs> wife. <laughs> I, it's a nice party. Like, I get it. Like I tell people all the time, I get why people want to live in nice neighborhoods. I get it. I get why people want to go to good schools. I lo- met my wife at Stanford. Met a lot of my best friends at Stanford. I'm literally only the mayor of Stockton because I went to... There's no way folks in Stockton will elect a 25-year-old black guy who didn't go to... They, it was still a stretch yeah. for me. Like So... I get it. I continue to remind myself that because I used to have real feelings of survivor skill. And I realized that, no, you have to just put purpose to your privilege and then understand that there's enough for everyone. So you don't have to hoard. I think that's the shift. It's kind of like you're operating with a zero sum notion, right? So it's like once you're inside the party, you're like, if I'm going to lose these privileges by letting everyone <laughs> else in, then again, I'm disincentivized to let everyone else in. But if we have an ethos in this country where it's like, No, no, everyone can do it all. There is enough for everyone, and we can all have this great thing I'm now experiencing at the party. Open up the gates and let everyone into the party, right? That's the goal. And I think part of it is, though, I do think a lot of people like being special. I think a lot of people like being the only one. No, and I think for some people, it's so alluring that you they close the door. And I think that's why I'm so open to, like, the first thing I did in college was create a program to help kids apply to college and have Stanford students help them with their applications essays to say, look, let's get as many people here as possible, understanding that it, that scarcity benefits nobody. And I think particularly understanding that all the party I'm able to enjoy is because someone else was at the party and thought like, hey, let me go outside for a little bit to make sure Michael Tubbs could come in too. And just realizing yeah. that like, I didn't do this. Like there's, 
people like John Lewis literally in the party, got beat up outside the party, bled at for the party. Like, just all these things was inside. Yeah. So don't just go back outside, like, make sure everyone gets in. It's like, no, you have to. And I think part of also just being a Christian and understanding that it's to hoard, to not give, is antithetical to what you say you believe. Yeah, yeah. You probably hate this question, but I must <laughs> ask it. What kind of aspirations do you have? How long can you be mayor? Are there term limits? Yeah, yeah, it's term limits. So I'm running for re-election now. Oh, okay. If I'm re-elected in November, I get four more years maximum. Do you think you will want to go into some private world? Do you think you'll be more effective there? Do you think you want to become the governor of this enormous state, the eighth biggest economy in the world? What, what do you want to do? Yeah, I, I think and that's a good question. It's coming up more and more um, now. Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say in 2024, I would have spent 12 years and local government. And most of those years aren't spent talking to cool people on podcasts or watching <laughs> HBO <laughs> documentaries. That's only like 0.01% of the 12 years experience. Um, and, and a lot of it's just not sexy. A lot of it's actually very annoying and draining, but some of it's great. Like we actually get stuff done. So I think after 2024, my, I'll be 34. My wife and I would just have to have a conversation about sort of the sacrifices we're making in terms of my time, her time, profile, et cetera. Are we actually making enough change to justify it? Because for me, it's not about being in office. It's about, like, the office isn't the end. It's a means to the end. The end being how do we kind of create a more fair and equitable opportunity structure in this country. So to say that, I'll say in 2024, if there's a political office that makes sense and we feel like, okay, we'll be able to actually do something that makes us proud of what we're giving up to do it. Absolutely. But being a politician and going to, like, chicken dinners and... Uh, uh. That's not appealing, actually. But if they're like, oh, we can actually do some things and fix these yeah. systems. Yeah. But I also know I spend a lot of my time talking to folks in the private sector, folks who employ lots of people, folks who invest in a lot of companies, foundations who give a lot of money, folks who are advocating and pushing for better. And I've seen how each of them also have a role to play. So I think for me, it would be just taking stock and figuring out what's the best way to actually make the changes or to have the influence on the things I care about. And it's going to be either in government or in media or in the private sector or in philanthropy yeah. or in some weird mix of all four. They're usually all the levers we try to pull to kind of get the stuff we're doing and stop and try to make it happen. Okay. So a friend of mine brought this up yesterday. I saw a lot of validity in his argument. He was venting about having watched some of the proceedings with all the tech guys on Capitol Hill right now getting kind of grilled. And he said in particular, he was watching this one congressman uh, just grilling Jeff Bezos, right? Just calling him every name under the book and just insulting him in all ways. And my friend said, you know, here's one guy who is fucking shined in this pandemic, right? You couldn't have done better than Amazon did, right? They have mobilized in a way they're so successful. They're meeting the needs of every consumer in America. And you have this fucking overweight asshole uh, representing government as if they're doing something spectacularly, right? They, they fought, well, what have you guys did with COVID? Great job. You know, how the fuck, how dare someone that's so ineffective be yelling at someone who's so effective? The irony of that a little bit, like we have income inequality and that's horrendous and that's an issue that needs to be solved. But to put all your ire about that onto this person who's just really operating at an incredibly high level, no one can argue that, and make that person the enemy, also just, again, 
looking at Bill Gates and going, yeah, okay, he assembled this thing, and guess what? He's given it all back. He's also going to be able to do things that the government can't do, that yeah. other people can't do. He is he has made himself an island, one that can weather the barrage of insults and second guessing, and he can make some hard decisions with that war chest he has. So, I guess I see the value in some of these billionaires, and I'm a little nervous of the left just kind of labeling billionaires as bad guys. Now there are some fucking bad guy billionaires, no question, but. I don't know about having a class of people we hate because they've succeeded. What do you think about all that? I think that the issue isn't with a person or uh, individual success. I think we should celebrate success. The issue is with the system. And they are operating within a framework of rules that we've all agreed to by virtue of being part of this government. So if there's an issue, the senator should be mad at the senator. Like, like how, how do you, yeah. why don't you have the right guardrails? to create the boundaries with which folks can be entrepreneurial as well. I, I think I, I don't want tech people to be policymakers. Like they shouldn't be making the policy. They can help inform, they can help advocate, but the fact that we expect them to- Do the government's job virtually. Yeah, like that's, and that's why when I mentioned Jeff Bezos, I said no hate to Jeff Bezos. He's a smart guy. Right. But if we could find a way to make Jeff Bezos $13 billion in one day, we have to be able to find policies and laws that make it so 13 million people are hungry. Yeah, yeah. My issue is not with Jeff Bezos, Evan Spiegel, who's a dear friend of mine, like a brother to me. Do your thing, man. That was a great idea. You work incredibly hard. I've seen it since college. But let's just have a conversation about how do you make more stories like yours possible? And how do you mm -hmm. make sure your success is widely felt by all the people who help make you successful? But I don't get when they're grilling these people about their regulation. I'm like, you set the regulations. Yeah, not one of them has broken the law. There's, no one's <laughs> accusing them of breaking any laws. Yet they're they're on trial right now. It's weird to me because I'm like, you want? I'm, I know when I'm playing pickup basketball, I'm trying to win. I'm I'm, I'm not calling all the fouls. Yes. But the referees shouldn't be mad at the players. The referees should be mad at the referees and say, hey, this game has gotten out of hand. Let's make sure we are enforcing out of bounds. Make sure we're enforcing fouls. But instead, the referees want to like yell at the players. And the players are like, I'm just playing the game. And I think that... Yeah. It, but refereeing is hard because you're going to make some people mad. Like Again, if yeah. you're used to playing a game with no rules and there's rules, maybe you can do $10 billion in a day and not $13 billion. That may annoy you. But I think as policymakers, you have to have a little bit of courage but I'm also worried, and I don't want to live in a country where people's success is demonized, where you are a bad guy because you were successful. Yeah. You went to school, you had a good idea. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're wonderful. You're very exciting for us to keep an eye on. In addition to doing a great job up there, you're just a really fun story to watch. Are you, as much as you hated every conversation was about your age, are, you realize pretty soon no one's going to give a shit about that. No, so, so I turned 30 <laughs> on the second. So I was telling someone yesterday, I said, you know, I used to always complain like, young this, young that. I'm going to miss that because now, even now, my feathers ruffle a little bit when there's like someone younger. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. And like in a sure. meeting, I'm like, who is this young person? Like, I'm, the, <laughs> I'm the young person, right? No, so I, I, I'm actually... I'm going to miss it. But I think luckily for me, as of right now, my career is politics and everyone's like, wait, like I'll be young for the next 20 years. But <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's true. Let me 50 years old, like the young man from Stockton. <laughs> but yeah. if I was like in tech or something, I would be like an OG. They'd be gently talking about how to put you out to pasture with some golden parachute. I think he's not as innovative. He's lost a step. He doesn't have the same hunger. He has a family now. Um, so, so, so no, and I, and I do think my age has been such a gift politically because it's allowed me to work with 
all types of people. It makes it like safer, I think, to work with me for people. All right. Well, I hope we talk to you again because it's a great resource for us to have to kind of check in with these innovative policies you're you're trying out. Absolutely. This is like therapy. So I appreciate that. Oh, good, 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 good. We'll talk more about mom. Yeah. We need a whole two hours <laughs> on mom. Seriously. <laughs> Thanks again so much for your time. And I can't wait to talk to you again. Sounds good, brother. Thank you guys for having me. All right. Bye. Be good.